side of the valley up there and the uh, great mountains of Promontory. And uh, uh, Nate and Danielle were our next door neighbors for a couple of years and uh, we chased them away. They, <laughs> they left. But uh, no, they were wonderful neighbors. Well, I am a very, very proud husband of Debbie, my girlfriend there. And I've got three kids and six grandchildren, and I'm just delighted that we have a wonderful, intimate, informal family meeting tonight. All right, kids, I hear, I've heard that you are really amazing at answering questions. Yeah? Okay, you're on? Super. All right, how many of you are uh, older than three? Okay, three, perfect, yes. You, and see, all the adults put up their hands too. <laughs> Good. And uh, how many of you are uh, between grade kindergarten and grade seven? Okay. All right. So don't don't feel embarrassed at all. I know I'm a stranger, but just. Uh, Shout out the answers, and uh, let's, let's see how much of God's word we can learn tonight. Well, have you ever embarrassed yourself in a way that just leaves you in a cold sweat for years after? Yeah? Yeah? Well, I'm willing to bet that I have a, that I have a story about my personal embarrassment that beats yours. I mean, we're talking not only about a foot in the mouth, we're talking all the way down to the knee with shoe polish on the lips. It was horrible. <laughs> so one morning, I, I wake up, ordinary morning like anything else, and somewhere in between breakfast and the toothpaste, uh, the phone rings. And... How many times have you had a phone ring and it be from the Prime Minister's office? My heart just started racing or it stopped, I can't remember which. And my, my head is racing, I'm going, oh my goodness, if this is something bad, I, I was misquoted, if it's something good, I'll take credit for it, like what's going on? Well, it turned out it was something good and a couple of months later, Debbie and I are um, flying off to Ottawa to uh, collect an award and uh, this included spending a big chunk of time with the Prime Minister in his personal office on Parliament Hill, as well as uh, a meal and a good part of an evening at 24 Sussex. So anyhow, when in the Parliament building, I cannot believe I did this, <laughs> I'm walking down the long hall to his office, there's a, a guide showing the way, passing some very... Um, unamused, stoic guards, you know, with the little curly things and kind of talking into their wrists, and came up to his door. The guide knocked on the door, said, come in, walked in, and the prime minister stuck out his hand. I stuck out mine. He said, welcome, and I said, my voice froze. It dried up. I couldn't talk. And I just like, I melted, just this awkward, stony silence. You've heard that saying that everything that goes into my, my mouth makes me fat, and everything that comes out of my mouth embarrasses me, while well, there was nothing coming out of my mouth, and I was embarrassed. And uh, anyhow, he, he was really gracious, and we had, we had a wonderful time um, after that. But at that moment, I had a... Zachariah struck dumb moment. 
Well, in our passage this evening, we're going to follow the story of an incredible young woman. I know some religious uh, traditions exaggerate her, but nonetheless, Mary is an amazing woman. And this young woman met somebody with a higher authority than any world leader. And instead of responding like me with a tied tongue, this remarkable young lady engages in a discussion with a being who is so exalted that he tells Zacharias in a few, few verses earlier that he stands directly in the presence of God himself. And so by the time we're done, I'm hoping that with this passage, kids, we can learn three things. And we're going to actually put them in the form of questions. So I'm going to test you on this later, okay? And I hear that there's some really good goodies that get given out, right? Are you into candy canes yet? Oh. Number one, first question that I want us to answer is, who does God favor? Number two, who is this child? And number three, how can Mary have a baby? Well, verse 26 sets the stage with a timeline. In the sixth month. In the sixth month of what? Well, what do you think that was, kids? Six months. What's being referred to there? All right, well, who are the, who are the people in the verses before that had had this announcement that they were, they were going to have a miracle baby? I'll give you a hint. They were really old. He was a priest. Remember their names? Yes, Zachariah and Elizabeth. All right, like they are ancient, nearly as old as me. And God, Gabriel appeared to them, told them that they were going to have a child. They, they and quite frankly, at least uh, Zacharias had some trouble believing in it, believing it. But sure enough, this elderly woman becomes pregnant and it's the sixth month. That's what they're talking about there. Well, now a, few, a, few, a while later, six months later, Gabriel who had broken this news again to this elderly priest, makes another visit and comes to a town called, what was it? Well, Bethlehem, yeah, it's close. Bethlehem was where Jesus was born. But actually at this time, Mary, when she gets the angel visiting her, is in good. Whoa. All right, give that guy an A. So, yeah, and... We are told that she was engaged to a person called Joseph. So, now I want you to imagine Mary here. How old do you think Mary was? Yeah? 24? Yeah, okay. Well, that's, that's, that's a really good guess because uh, I was married at age 23. And, you know, most people kind of get married after 20. But in those days, it was very different Typically, they would only live like to about age 39. And it was not, it was normal for them to be engaged and married maybe sometime between age 12 and 15. <laughs> Is there anybody between age 12 and 15 here? Oh, okay. So, uh, quite, quite, uh, quite young. I want you to imagine Mary. Mary is probably going through 
or ordinary daily routine. People back then spent the vast majority of their time getting food, taking care of their clothing, and sleeping. Like that was basically most of their day. And suddenly, this angel appears and stands before her, and it's not just an ordinary angel. Can anybody remember the name of this angel? Yes? Gabriel. Gabriel. Fantastic. Oh, my goodness. Wonderful. And, uh, yeah, Gabriel appears before her. And uh, now this Gabriel is a, is a very, very special angel. In Scripture, he appears not just once, but three times. And his role is to communicate and interpret really important things that God wants certain individuals to know. Anybody know the first person that Gabriel appeared to? Adults can join in. Yes, dear. Oh, okay. That's, that is a super good guess. Uh, no, but thank you. Thank you for ask, answering. Who? Good guess. Okay. Daniel. Okay, so yeah. So, and we are told that every time he visited these people, these three people, there was a traumatic reaction. And we're told that Daniel, this man of God, was so frightened that he fell on his face when Gabriel appeared to him. And it was followed by him being sick for days and overcome. And the Bible says that he was appalled by the vision. So fast forward five centuries when Gabriel is revealed to Zacharias, just a few verses earlier. And Zacharias is a, anybody know what his profession was? What, what role he had in Israel? He was a priest. Good, yeah. Whoa, my goodness. How many of you, any of you teachers here? Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. You know, you teach grade six? Seven, yeah, okay. Yeah, I, th I think we, we chatted before. I, I think, I think uh, every come June, we'd be fighting over these kids to have them in our class. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So fast forward five centuries, Gabriel's revealed to Zechariah, a priest. He's standing right beside the altar of incense in the temple, and Gabriel appears. And what is the reaction of Zacharias? He is fearful. He's troubled. Fear fell on him. And then, six months later, less than a year later, he appears to Mary. But verse 29 tells us that Mary was very, very troubled when Gabriel appeared. But it doesn't say that she was troubled because of his presence. It says that she was troubled by the greeting that he gave her. What did Gabriel say? He said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, Zechariah got absolutely no greeting, but Mary is told that she is favored and the Lord is with her. And the fact that she was troubled by the greeting probably indicates her humility. How could anyone, let alone God, she may be thinking, think this of me? Favored? And... Uh, then the angel sees that she's troubled and comforts her yet again. She says, don't be afraid, Mary. And he says it again. You have found favor with God. In 
The original language, anybody know what language the Bible was originally written in? Yes. Hebrew. Excellent. Yes, Hebrew. What else? There's other languages too. At least two more main ones. Yes. Gibberish. <laughs> Gibberish. <laughs> uh, sorry? Greek. Greek, yes. And there was a third one. Yes. Aramaic. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Score. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, in the original language, it, uh, this word, highly favored, actually means almost the same thing as grace. So what is grace? Well, grace is, is like unmerited favor. It's like a gift. It's something that you get that you don't deserve. And so Gabriel is saying that Mary is highly favored because God is pouring out his grace on her. Now let's switch from Mary to ourselves for a second. Fast forward two millennia. Do you, do you ever feel like somehow in your life you've missed getting God's grace poured out on you? Uh, I don't think I need to tell you that at this time in our uh, culture, in our time in history, your social status, you know, where you are on the hierarchy, on the pecking order in society, will be largely determined by some combination of your wealth, your brains, your appearance, your athletic ability, and having the right friends. But those were not the things that were important to the God of heaven and earth when choosing the person who was going to give birth to Jesus. Mary is at the bottom of the social hierarchy. She's from a place that the snooty upper classes in Jerusalem used to poke fun of. They kind of looked on the people from Nazareth as um, country bumpkins. They would uh, say things like, you know, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Uh, any, any of you from Saskatchewan? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, Deb, Deb's from Saskatchewan, so I've, I've spent a lot of time there. And they, they, they really do produce wonderful ladies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but... If, if this was Saskatchewan, you would describe Nazareth as three telephone poles past Gopher Gulch. They wouldn't even film corner gas there because there wouldn't be a gas station available, too small. And uh, so she comes from an inferior place by, by the world's standards. She's an inferior gender. She's a woman. And women back there were definitely lower in status. She was an inferior ethnicity. She was a reviled Jew who was colonized by the boots of the conquering Rome. She was uh, an inferior age. She was very young. She was inferior in her wealth. She was very poor. We know that because when her family went to uh, the temple a couple of chapters later, they gave us their offering a couple of pigeons, and that was what the very poorest of the poor would give for their offerings. And yet, that was not her worst inferiority. On top of all of those inferiorities in the eyes of the world, she is about to lose what little remaining dignity is left by becoming an unwed mother. 
all of the gossips in town will be doing the math as her pregnancy becomes obvious. And yet all of that shame, all of that inferiority is washed away when not once but twice Gabriel tells her that she has been favored and that the Lord is with her. Did God make a mistake? Couldn't even found somebody with higher status? Absolutely not. That's just the way that God often works. He often uses insignificant people to do great things. The Apostle Paul showed us what this means in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Whoa. When I read that, I had to let that last phrase sink in. Even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Okay, so let's go from Nazareth, one of the smallest, most insignificant little places in the Roman Empire, to Rome. And let's imagine the most powerful person in the world. Who's the emperor at this time? Caesar? Augustus, yes. And I want you to imagine him. You, there, some of his palaces are still in existence. And I want you to imagine Augustus walking around his palaces and they overlook the site of this, the mass of colonnades of the Circus Maximus. This is one of the, this is the largest sports stadium in the whole Roman Empire, seated 150,000 people. And he is in Rome. Palatine Hill, all of the power and might of one of the world's greatest empires is at his command. Can you imagine that he would have the foggiest conception that in just a few centuries, that which is now low and despised, as the Apostle Paul says, something that is not, that a tiny seed in a nameless peasant girl is going to bring to nothing all of this splendor of the Roman Empire in just a few centuries. In fact, churches would be sprouting up all over the ruins of Augusta's decaying monuments. <laughs> yeah, kids, you ever feel small and insignificant, you remember that God favors the use of small things. Some little kid with five loaves and two fishes and it feeds how many thousands of people? 5,000? Little mustard seed that can grow into this big tree and provide shade for many. Gideon with 300 tiny, tiny little army of 300 who through God's help routes the vast Midianite army. The gift of two pennies from a widow that Jesus says is worth more than all the bags of gold that the rich throw into the offerings. And God can even use a donkey. <laughs> yeah. What was the name of the donkey that he spoke to, spoke through? 
Balaam's donkey. And because God uses the low things, the things are, that are not, that same favor God extended to Mary is now available to all who would show the obedience of the gospel. What? Harris, aren't you saying that the blessing, the favor that was given to Mary is not unique? Well, in one sense it is. But in one sen another sense, a powerful sense, the favor that is given to Mary is the same favor that is given to all those who respond to the gospel. Wow, what, what do I mean by that? Well, what's the word that Gabriel used to describe Mary? He said that she was highly favored. And do you know that that phrase, highly favored, only appears one other time in the entire New Testament? And guess who is highly favored in that passage? It's us. It's in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Then Paul goes on to list our riches, the wealth that we have in Christ. It's just... I mean, every single phrase here deserves a, deserves a sermon. But notice, let's just follow this along at verse 4. It says, as he lists it, he says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That phrase, which he has blessed us, is exactly the same phrase in the original, only other place in the New Testament where it exists, that was given to Mary. And what the Apostle Paul says is that if you are in Christ, if you are a child of Christ, that same favor that God extended to Mary, he can extend to us. God loves us. Take comfort in that. So through Christ, that same favor can be ours if we respond to the gospel with the same faith Mary showed. All right? Second question we want to answer is this. Who is this child? Well, Gabriel moves on from the great greeting and explains why this favor is God with, with God is so important. Now put yourself again in Mary's shoes. As she's trying to process this talk about favor with God, Gabriel unleashes a second surprise and the surprise is that she's going to be the mother of a son. Can you imagine a 12 to 15-year-old uh, young woman hearing that? And it's quickly followed by a third stunner that her teenage body is to become nothing less than the means by which heaven is going to break into earth through which God is going to become a man. And then the angel discharges an explosion of theology. It's almost like a machine gun, rapid fire, 
truth about who this child is going to be. And he outlines five things that we need to know about this baby. And if we don't get these five facts straight, then Christmas is not going to make complete sense. And behold, he says, you shall conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus? Well, wait a sec. How many of you parents here were told what to name your child? Isn't it the parent's prerogative to name your own children? No. With special, not here, with special marked out roles that God has given John the Baptist and Jesus, God does the naming here. And Mary is told what to name her child, and it is, what is it? Jesus, yeah. And what does Jesus mean? That word Jesus means literally one who saves. Well, if you're going to be saved, you need to be saved from something. There's a problem. What does Jesus save us from? Death. Death, yes. What else? Sin. Sin. It's correct. Whoa. And, but he's not only a savior. The, The angel continues. He says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The angel repeats this in verse 35. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And by being told that her child is to be the Son of God, Mary is being told that her son is to be both God and man. (laughs) All right? Kids, wrap wrap your head around this. Jesus is not like half God and half man. He is fully God and fully man at the same time. And if that confuses you, talk to a teacher who teaches physics and you'll learn all about quantum mechanics and oh my goodness, some of the things they're discovering right at the forefront of knowledge will blow you away. You know, you look up things like uh, adults, check out things, if, if, if the doctrine of the Trinity and, you know, how God can, how Jesus can be God and man kind of confuses you, you can see models of that in, uh, in, 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 in physics. You know, look, look in, uh, into things like superposition and quantum entanglement. It blows your mind. It's like parables of, of some of these great truths. And uh, one of the greatest uh, physicists of all time is a guy called John Polkinghorne, who's a Christian. He quit physics at about age 49 and became a pastor. And he's written books uh, uh, describing uh, how, how uh, quantum mechanics and, and the forefront of physics uh, illustrates the Bible in so many ways. Yeah, so her baby is to be the son of God, both God and man. But there's more. Number three, notice that the son of God is also a king. Notice the royal words used here. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. (laughs) Well, Israel has had a long, long history with kings, and most of them, of course, were evil. And when, when we add up all of the kings that Israel had, 
before this king. There's about 42 kings and one queen. So there are 43 of them all together. And of those 43, seven were mainly good. Uh, five ended their reigns kind of with like, you know, mixed records like Solomon. And 31 were almost exclusively evil. And we, do, and we don't know the final fates for all of these kings, but we do know that just over half were either killed by their enemies or by coups or directly by God. And the good king's average reign was about 34 years, and the bad king's only about 18. But all of the kings and queens that have ever ruled have been flawed and they have been temporary. This king, it says, the house will rule over the house of Jacob and of his kingdom there will be no end. He is, his kingship is going to be eternal. Every single king, every single empire that either exists now or has, exist, has existed is temporary. One of the things I'm really interested in is, is, uh, is, is history and the growth of empires and the, fact, the factors that lead to the development of great power among civilizations and empires, and then what leads to their decline. I'm really interested in that, in that question. And uh, this, but this king is going to break out of this rise and fall. Do you know that the average empire will last somewhere between 300 and 400 years. Lately, in the last couple hundred years, it's been a lot quicker than that. Um, Thomas Cole uh, has painted some pictures of the, uh, of the uh, life cycle of empires. Okay, so this is called the savage state. It's when uh, people are quite nomadic, living off the land. Then the next one's called the pastoral state. They're starting to get some basic technologies. The third one is called the consummation of empire. Uh, that's when the empire reaches its peak and then there is its destruction. It's almost a scene from the, uh, the vandals uh, invading Rome and then desolation. And uh, one, of, one of Deb and I's favorite places to go is, is Rome. And you, you stand there and look at these vast monoliths and huge decaying walls. And you keep, put that in one part of your mind and then you think of Christ who is, as Revelation 11.15 says, is inheriting the kingdom of the world, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So, first thing, kids, that this passage te taught us is what? Who will be favored? Good. The second thing this passage teaches us is who is, who is this? Child. Good. All right. Last thing. How can Mary have a child? Oh, that's a lot to process for a young teenager. It kind of, kind of, uh, kind of hits you with a, 
kind of hits you with a ton of bricks. How can she have a child? Well, if you look at, look at this, uh, at, at the, um, go down to where it says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Mary is to be given this child, not through a husband, but through the direct power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to come over you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. You see, if the Holy Spirit, if God had not produced the child, Jesus, it says here, by, by implication, he wouldn't be holy. And he has to be holy in order for him to be a suitable sacrifice to die for our sins. If Jesus sinned and he died, could he forgive, forgive us of our sins? No, he can only do that because he is holy. And that can only come because the Most High overshadowed him and, and the Holy Spirit gave the power to make him holy and therefore a suitable sacrifice for our sins. Well, how does, uh, how does uh, Elizabeth respond? I mean, Mary respond. The angel continues and says, Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And notice how Mary responds, and it's the response of all of us. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her in faith, she accepted what the Lord, through the angel, said and went on to be one of God's most important people in history. I'd like to finish off with, with a poem that, uh, that tries to uh, put all of this together. Um, uh, Mums and dads, I, I just, uh, every time Christmas comes around, I, I just cannot, I find my head swimming trying to put together the transcendence and the power of God and a little baby lying in a manger. I mean, those, that, that paradox just blows me away. And here's some thoughts to try to make sense of it, and we'll finish with this. The light of the world now waits in a dark, stable cavity. His flaming majesty swallowed by Sumerian human depravity. He whose word unleashed a furious nuclear cauldron of a trillion spiral galaxies in blazing symmetrical motion. His tongue lies quiet and serene, but poised to speak again. Words that change to flesh the calcified hearts of men. Infinity locked in a manger, eternity tethered to time. The creator is transformed and conceived to heal vile defects of mine. Great in his essence as God, but small as a servant in a barn. He is snared by his own creation. 
to release my soul from harm. The inns are still filled with anxiety, but fear not, neurotic earth. Make room in your troubled hearts for the miraculous new birth. For he trades his sapphire thrones and celestial armies of white and the luminous radiance of gold and the carnelian heavenly heights for a donkey's dish of straw and naked defenselessness. And he prepares for epic battle dressed only in holiness. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you so much for breaking into our fallen, corrupted world. And Lord, we thank you for this tender story. And Father, we ask that like Mary, we will be your servants and do everything according to your will. And Lord, we ask for a special blessing and a special covering for these precious kids here and for wisdom for their parents to find out their bent, to find out the path that they should be encouraged to go. And Father, we ask that the church of Lake Iraq will train up, grow a new generation that will extend your kingdom into the future and grow into the final consummation when you come. In Jesus' name, amen.